0: Peace be with you. Amen. Great is his faithfulness. If you can stand to your feet <laughs> with your Bibles in your hand. Uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 35. And if you don't have a Bible, in just a few moments, we'll have the uh, verses on the screen. And before we dive into the word, I just want to uh, thank... Sojourn Midtown for just a special Easter last week. Amen, amen. 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 We uh, had a wonderful time in the Lord at each and every one of our services um, across all four campuses. We had the joy of celebrating our largest Easter together as Sojourn Community Churches. We had over six thousand people attend our services. And what's important is not the number for number's sake, but to realize that. Uh, people invited friends and family members, and that those each of those individuals at each campus got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, both both sung, and preached. Uh, I believe with clarity. We also praise God for uh, the members, particularly here at Midtown, uh, for all the volunteers that served in so many special ways. We had an abundance of volunteers which made each of our services uh, run smooth, which served each of our guests. And for those who even took time to go to uh, another uh, uh, service rather than the 10 or the 11 o'clock, we just want to say thank you. You guys rock, and uh, we praise God for what, what he did last Easter. Now, with that in mind, there is a temptation to come into the week after Easter um, and, and almost treat it just like, okay, now things are back to normal. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus last week but this week is just church as usual. And I want to encourage you as you listen to the word this week to fight against that temptation. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday we celebrate our resurrected Christ uh, together. So let's listen intently with our hearts and our minds open to the word uh, this evening, knowing that every single day of the Christian life, is a day in which we celebrate our risen Lord. Amen? Now, so we're concluding a three-part series today uh, before we jump into a new series next week on the book of Jonah. In part one of our series, we see that Jesus rides into Jerusalem um, on a donkey, uh, being held as king. In part two last week, we see that Jesus is taken outside of the, the gates of Jerusalem, and he is crucified. And he defeats death by being raised from the dead. In part three this week, we're going to look at Jesus, who is having a conversation with two disciples on his way to a road called Emmaus. So he is actually leaving Jerusalem. So we're going to pick up at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walked along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleophas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped But they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are. Now slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, The bread. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we we come to you this evening, needing you to capture our attention, soften our hearts. Your word says in Psalm 127 Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, those who build labor in vain. The same is true unless you build a sermon, those who preach it, preach it in vain. Unless you touch our hearts, those who listen, listen in vain. So, Lord, we omit our dependence and our need for you. Help us, Father, God, like uh, the, the, the disciples here on the Emmaus Road. Um, help us if we're here today downcast, leave this place delighting in you. Father, you are good. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, today I want to uh, look at this text titled The Extreme Spiritual Makeover. Uh, how to move from a downcast face to a delighting heart. The Extreme Makeover Home Edition is a television show that has been popular uh, for quite some time. In fact, many of you grew to love the show. We love how a family has a home and how that home maybe isn't in the best shape But Ty Pennington and the gang come, and they make over the house. One of my favorite scenes, and your favorite scenes, if you've seen the television show, is when uh, they, at the very end, uh, have a bus blocking uh, the, the family from their new house. And everyone shouts at the television with Ty, move that bus. There's something about that television show. There's something about HGTV. Uh, you know, uh, what's a what's Chip and Joanna, right? Chip and JoJo. Flip or flop. See, people catching the Holy Spirit in here, right? There's something about that show that just endures us because we love to see the good, uh, the bad go to the good, the broken go to the whole. We love stories of transformation. In fact, some of your favorite movies, some of your favorite books Is about restoration, revitalization, a story about someone going from rags to riches. It's as if God has built in us a desire to see transformation, a desire to see growth, a desire to see something go from one state that is not good to a state that is good. And today in the text, we see a popular text. Luke 24, one of the more popular texts in the New Testament, I believe the reason that is is so popular and so known to many is because it's a great story of transformation. It's a story about how Jesus meets two disciples who are downcast, who are de- de- uh, delusioned, who are uh, downtrodden, who are despondent, and by the end of this passage, we see that they are delighting in God and running back to Jerusalem with with joy. We love stories of transformation. And if we are going to be like these disciples, if you find yourself in a state of maybe being despondent, a state of being discouraged, a, a state of being a downcast today, if we are going to be like these disciples and have delighted hearts, there's two things that, that we need to keep in mind. The first thing, if we're going to experience an extreme spiritual makeover, is that we need need God to see ourselves correctly. And the second is that we need God to see Christ clearly. We need God to see ourselves correctly, and we need God to see Christ clearly. Now, notice that both of these steps are rooted in God. Transformation does not happen apart from God. Sanctification does not happen apart from God. A person going from a state of being dead in their trespasses and sins and transformed to the kingdom of light by his grace does not happen apart from God. We desperately need God to work in our hearts. God to save us from our slumber, God to come alongside us and bring us renewal. And that's what we see in this text. Jesus is going to meet two disciples who are downcast, and he is going to mercifully come alongside them, journey with them for, for seven miles in order to reconfigure their heart. Just like that house needs Experiences change from an external, in an external way. So do we. Change comes from God. We see in this text, Jesus comes along, these disciples, and the text says in verse 16 that they were kept from recognizing him. He enters into, interrupts their conversation, and they, they don't recognize him. The question is, why can't they recognize him? There's a couple theories. One, some people say they didn't recognize him because Jesus uh, disguised himself physically. Maybe he was wearing a disguise. Maybe he had a hood over his head, and they couldn't tell it was him. That's a possibility, though unlikely. The second is that maybe Jesus came just as he normally would come, but the disciples thought that he was dead and was so sure that he was dead that they did not recognize it was him. That's certainly a possibility. Kind of reminds me of the day that I got engaged to my wife. She thought I was in uh, here and uh, she thought I was in Chicago, uh, hanging out with my family downtown. But actually, I was in her home city, Kalamazoo, Michigan. I had planned it really well. In fact, we had just gotten off the phone. I kind of, I did, I lied to her to to make it work. (laughs) I told her, I said, I'm downtown with my family. She said, oh, okay. But little did she know that I had her sisters uh, walking with her downtown, taking her to a restaurant. And I was supposed to meet her at this restaurant, take her by her arm, take her to the restaurant and propose to her. Well, the plan got interrupted a little bit because on my way to the restaurant, my lips were chapped. And I said, I can't propose to her with chap lips. <laughs> they were so dry. I mean, they, they look like the desert. I said, I've got to find some, some, some chapstick. And so as I'm walking to this convenience store right by the restaurant, we walk right by each other on the road. In fact, I looked at her right in the eye. She looked at me. I smiled. I thought the gig was up and I was going to have to propose with chap lips. But she just turned her head and kept walking. I went, I got some chapstick, I caught back up with her, and I'll never forget her face. She was so confused. She looked at me, she looked at her sisters, then she looked at her phone, she looked at me, then she looked around, and she looked back at me, she said, wait a minute, I'm confused. Where am I? Why? Because she wasn't expecting to see me. Perhaps that's what what happened with these disciples. They're not expecting to see Jesus. But I think that's unlikely as well. I I believe what we see here is Jesus kind of going incognito in a divine way. God blinds the disciples to sing, miraculously blinds the disciples from seeing Jesus as Jesus. Why? Because Jesus wants to take them on a journey. And Jesus wants to draw near to them in their downcast state. Jesus wants to draw out of their heart where they are in their present predicament, but he doesn't want to leave them there. And that's the good thing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave us where he is found us. He journeys with us, and he takes us where we need to go. Do you see these disciples on this road? Verse 17 says that Jesus comes alongside of them, and he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along?" And the Bible says that when he asked that question, they stopped walking. They stand still, and it says their faces are downcast. And why is their faces downcast? Their faces is downcast because when Jesus died, hope had died. When Jesus' body was put in a tomb, their hope was put in a tomb. And listen to how they respond to Jesus. In essence, they say, Cleophas says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, man, have you been living under a rock? Do you not know what happened? And we can imply here that the death of Jesus was top, the top story in Jerusalem. Imagine going to New York the day after 9-11 and coming up alongside a New Yorker and asking, hey, I see all this destruction, and I see people are sad and crying. What happened yesterday? The New Yorker will look at you and say, man, where have you been? Have you not heard? And that's what they say here. Have you not heard? This was big news, the death of Jesus. In fact, any serious historian will tell you that they agree with a number of things that Christians agree with about the life of Jesus. Number one, that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth who lived. Number two, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, lived an extraordinary life, a life that was so extraordinary that after he died and his body couldn't be found, people who were a part of the Jewish faith gave up many important elements of the faith They started worshiping on Sundays instead of Saturdays. They changed their diet because this man's life was so extraordinary. Three, that Jesus Christ believed that he was God and that he did miracles and things that could not be explained. And four, no one knows what happened to his body. And that's exactly what these disciples explained to Jesus. They explained to Jesus, well, listen, uh, A prophet died, one who was powerful in word and deed. And then they explain, and not only did he die, but his body was missing. Some, Some disciples rushed to his tomb looking for his body, but his body was not there. An angel spoke and said that he was alive. But verse 21 shows us why they are so despondent. Listen to their words. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That's why they're downcast. See, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and to them being the Messiah meant that Jesus was going to save them from Roman captivity. And when Jesus died, they realized that their political plans had been put on Paul's and that Jesus was not who they had hoped he would be. He was not going to do what they had thought he was going to do. And isn't that really the source of much of our downtroddenness? Isn't that really the source of of much and, and many of our most depressing moments? Isn't misplaced hope what Often takes us down. And some of us this evening, we find ourselves with our faces downcast because our wish list has not come true. You find yourself in a situation of, of being uh, a, a delusion because you thought that life would be different, you thought that marriage would be different. You thought that that friend who said that they would never turn their back on you would always be there, and now you're gone. You thought that you were more trustworthy, but you disappointed people. You thought that that education, that degree that you have would would promise a, a better job. If you're anything like me, misplaced hope can take you to a dump. It can take you to a place that you don't want to be, it can take you, metaphorically speaking, to Emmaus. These disciples are going to Emmaus. Metaphorically speaking, Emmaus is a place that we go when things don't go our way. And all of us have an Emmaus. And your Emmaus may not be my Emmaus, but we all have a place that we are tempted to go When God doesn't give us what we think we should have. You see the disciples going to Emmaus to cope. Going to Emmaus to to numb the pain. Going to Emmaus because they're confused. What's your Emmaus? You know, the power of addiction has some cycles, most psychologists say. Those who uh, are addicted to drugs or alcohol, it normally starts with the process. It starts with someone first seeking transcendence. They're seeking a high. They want to escape from reality. So you take a puff here, get that high, and then after that you find yourself trying to chase that high, trying to escape. And after a while, that high that you once could catch so easily, you can no longer catch as easily because now you find your tolerance rate to be higher. So that hit of cocaine that used to take you through the day and help you to forget about the problems no longer help you anymore. So you need more cocaine. And then they say after that tolerance rate changes, the next thing that happens to you is is total domination. The thing that you once went to for joy no longer gives you joy. The thing that you once went to for peace no longer gives you peace. The thing that once helped you escape no longer helps you escape. The thing that once helped you get away from your suffering now is the cause of your suffering. Suddenly you find yourself totally dominated by the thing that once gave you joy peace. Here's the problem. Every Emmaus, everything that we use to numb ourselves from reality eventually comes back to be the point of our suffering. Because our hearts were only made to be satisfied in Christ Jesus. Our hearts were only made to find its joy and its delight in Jesus. And that's the problem with sin. All of sin is addictive. It starts off sweet, but it ends up in death. It starts out what we want, and we end up being slaves to it. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to break us, not just from the, save us, not just from the penalty of sin, but he came to break the power of sin so that one day we can live in his presence without sin. The answer to your wish list not coming to be. The answer to your dashed hope and dreams is not Emmaus, it's Jesus. And Jesus is trying to show these disciples that what they needed was not a change of circumstances. What they needed was a change of heart. God can give you a new friend. God can give you a new spouse. God can give you a new economic status. God can give you a new job and you can still be miserable. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. But if he gives you a new perspective, if he gives you his son, Jesus, in the midst of a job that stinks, in the midst of dreams that didn't go the way that you wanted them to go, you still can have joy. That's what Jesus is showing these disciples. He's drawing out of their heart where they are in order for them to see themselves correctly, that they are in need of not nearly a political savior, but they are in need of redemption. They are in need. It's God's grace. Second, this text shows us that we need God to see Christ clearly. Christ comes alongside them. He hears what they have to say. In verse 25, he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So so how does Jesus move them from this place of having a downcast face to a, a heart that's delighting in him? He does it by giving them himself, by giving them a Christocentric perspective. And he does this by opening up the scriptures to them and showing how all of the scriptures pointed to him. How from the very beginning, it was God's plan that he would be slain. Now, can I be honest with y'all? I had an attitude with Luke all week. I just couldn't understand why Luke would do this to us. I mean, Jesus has preached probably the most powerful sermon. That seven-mile walk was some juicy stuff. And all he did was summarize it by saying that all of the scriptures pointed to him. But then I realized that that's the point. Luke didn't have time to pin all all the revelation that Jesus was throwing down. Can you see Jesus on the road? Opening up the scriptures to these disciples saying, listen, probably starting at Genesis 3.15, what is known as the Proto-Evangelium, that is, the first gospel where God declares that, the, brute, that the, the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of a woman. And then after going there, he probably showed them how he was the second Adam, greater than the first Adam. And where the first Adam fell, the second Adam would not fall. I can see Jesus then going to show them that he is better than Abel. And how Abel's blood cried out from the ground, that Jesus' blood would cry out. And this cry was not a cry of condemnation, but it was a cry of acquittal. You can see Jesus then bringing up not only Abraham and Abel, but then bringing up Isaac and showing how this son of laughter was only a foreshadowing of him. And how just like Isaac, Jesus too would would go to a hill to be sacrificed by his father. And that Jesus would be sacrificed so that we would have salvation. And after talking about Isaac, I can imagine that Jesus opened up the scripture some more and he discussed Jacob and how Jacob wrestled with God. And Jesus is the true Jacob who would wrestle with God and he would receive a blow from God. That we deserve. I can see him then talking about Moses and how Moses was a mediator and how Moses mediated a, a covenant to Israel. But how Jesus said, you know what, I'm I'm greater than Moses. Because not only am I your mediator, not only am I your high priest, but I also usher in a new covenant, a, a new grace. I can see him going on to talk about Job, saying just as Job suffered and his friends mocked him, so did the Son of Man innocently suffer, and he was mocked. And not only was he mocked, but he died for his friends. I can see him talking about David and how David fought Goliath, and he showed that he is the true David who would defeat the ultimate Goliath. Sin and death. Can't you see Jesus? They're talking about every priest and every prophet and every king that ever was and showing how he is the true fulfillment of every priest, every prophet, and every king. How everything in the Old Testament points to him. And Why is this important? This is important because it's a gift. It's a gift because it reminds us that salvation is not about our works. Salvation is not about our moralization. Salvation is about his work, his sacrifice, what he has done for us. And I can just see as he brings out the scriptures and he shows them how they relate to him, that their hearts begin to unthaw more and more as they begin to see Jesus for who he is and see themselves in light of Jesus. Every time we read the scriptures and every time we hear a sermon, man, we have the grace to see how it relates to Jesus. Every good sermon pretty much has the same pattern. This is the Bible. This is what the Bible says. You and I in our own strength will fail at doing this every time. Ah, But there is one named Jesus who perfectly did what we cannot do, run to him, delight in him, find power for living, find forgiveness of sin. This changes the way we see life. And not only that, we see that in verse 28, the Bible says that as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. I love this scene. Jesus is walking with them. They make it to this house in Emmaus. Jesus kind of plays a little game with them. He's like, all right, y'all, I'll see y'all later. He's acting like he's going to go on farther. They say, hold on, bro. Man, that sermon was crazy good. Why don't you come in and have a meal with us? I love what it says. It says they strongly advise him to eat with them. See, once you start seeing Jesus as who he is, you can't get enough of him. Even in the midst of your confusion, even in the midst of your downcastness, even in the midst of your brokenness, you find yourself like Jeremiah saying, when I said that I would speak of him no more, I found myself, I found it to be like fire shut up in my bones. When I said, I'm done, it's over. This Christian thing isn't working. I found the Holy Spirit drawing up and welling up on the inside of me saying, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is no one on the earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We see in this text that Jesus then comes into the home with them and he breaks bread with them. If we're going to have our hearts go from downcast to delighting, it is because like the disciples, by God's grace, we are able to see Jesus at work in the mundane things. He has a meal with them. And the Bible says it is during that meal that God removes the scales from their eyes so that they can see Jesus more clearly. Over a meal, Jesus becomes clear to them. You want to move from a downcast heart to a delighted heart? Learn to see Jesus, not just in all of the scriptures, but learn to see God at work in all of life. Jesus is extraordinarily ordinary. Jesus shows up to us, not just in, in loud ways like thunder and lightning, but he comes in a still, small voice. And some of our problem is, is that as we are constantly looking for God to show up in a loud way. And we miss that God comes in a whisper. God shows up when you open up your Bible, even though you're tired, before you go to work just to read a verse and to pray through it. He meets you in the ordinary. God is present when when you're tired at the end of the day and you gather your kids around to to say a prayer. He meets you in the ordinary. God is present when when you find yourself at a coffee shop sharing and catching up with a friend. He meets you in the ordinary. God is present when you're watching a a movie that has nothing to do about him, but you begin to look at the movie Christocentrically to see how is it that this character, even though in this movie they don't know Jesus, how can I see God's common grace? God is with us, and I don't know what you're going through, I don't know what lie Satan is trying to tell you, but I do know this. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is patient, and Jesus is present. Do you see his gentleness here? He meets these disciples where they were. He could have went to any other disciples, but he comes to these two to meet them. And he could have come any kind of way, but he came in a disguise in order to counsel them, in order to draw out their hearts so that there is self-discovery and powerful impact. And Jesus meets you right where you are. He knows your love language. He knows your address. He knows your hangups and your hiccups. He knows your struggles and your weaknesses, and he loves you enough every morning to give you fresh grace and mercy and to walk with you. See, our problem is, is oftentimes we want to hide our Emmaus from Jesus or we want to work on being free from our Emmaus without Jesus. Jesus said, no, let me walk with you to a." is to deliver you from your Emmaus. I'm not standing afar off watching you, judging you, upset with you. I want to walk with you to meet you right where you are. This is the good news. And this good news should well up in us. Just like it welled up in these disciples. They realizes Jesus, Jesus' job is done, so he just disappears. I don't know if he went to the bathroom and just didn't come back, but it says he disappeared. And then they run a half marathon back to Jerusalem the same night to do what? To tell other people what they had experienced. And that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to share your Emmaus story with other people to let them know I once was blind, but now I see, was lost, and now I'm found. And every Sunday when we gather together as a church, we gather together to take a meal that is ordinary, but that also is extraordinary. We break bread together to remind us of Christ's love for us. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he lifted a cup and says, this cup, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, Christian, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. Whatever your conscience permits, we take this ordinary meal every week because we serve an extraordinary Savior who died in our place. And this reminds us in a very simple and tangible way of his love for us that he was broken so that we would be made whole, that he was captured so that we would have freedom, that he was buried so that in him we would rise. If you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you not to take this meal, but rather I want to encourage you to take Christ. Every other thing, person, that you run to for your ultimate satisfaction will disappoint and leave you downcast. Run to Jesus who walks with you in your darkest seasons of disappointment and who speaks to you and reminds you of his love.